Please join me in prayer. God, you are our rock, you are our refuge, you are a safe place, Father. And we come to you this morning and some of our hearts are cold, some of our hearts are frozen. And I pray that your consuming fire would melt away the resistance, Father. I pray that your Holy Spirit would fall on us and empower us to change, Father. That this summer you would empower us to take one step closer to Christ, Father, wherever we are at on our spiritual journey. I pray that you would give us the the divine resources, the power that we need to follow you, Father. The, The power that we need to follow you in our workplace where it's so difficult. The power we need to be the kind of husband or wife or son or daughter that you have called us to be. Father, I pray for your blessing over this message. In Christ's name, amen. Well, good morning and welcome. Um, I want to give everyone a quick update on Pastor Dwayne and Sherry. Uh, They had a fantastic time up in Oregon at a family reunion, um, and they are now heading up to, actually they should be in uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, where Dwayne is uh, taking a class, and then they're going to have a rough couple weeks. They're going to take a cruise up to Alaska. Um, So so be in prayer for them. Um, I know this is just a very refreshing um, time for both of them. And so they appreciate your prayers. And they actually sent us a picture of a miracle. So this happens about once a year. Uh, Pastor Dwayne in the kitchen. Uh, He he doesn't make many appearances in there. I think he's doing a peanut butter and jelly sandwich uh, for the family there. So thank you for your prayers for them. Well, today, uh, go ahead and take out your sermon guides. We're going to start a series this morning called Blessed. And for the next eight weeks, we're going to look at this understanding of blessed from the Beatitudes of Jesus, uh, which we find in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. And uh, there's an interesting thing about this word blessed. Um, In a sense, all of us want a blessed life. You know, all of us want a life that um, has, has blessing, has satisfaction, has meaning to it. But I think part of the problem um, comes in defining exactly what blessing is. Um, Because in the world that we live in, according to bumper stickers and sound bites on TV and advertisements and and, and kind of the culture that that we just swim in, we're given um, one definition of the good life. We're given one definition of blessing. There's kind of this this folk wisdom in our culture that tells us uh, what the good life, what the blessed life looks like. And this is what I call the secular beatitudes. And so here are uh, four secular beatitudes um, that... A lot of us encounter first, blessed are the rich for they will have a comfortable retirement. We get that one a lot, uh, especially in advertising. Uh, Here's another one. Blessed are the good looking for they will be envied. Uh, Blessing are the educated for they will be respected. And blessed are the sexually active for they will have an adventurous life. And there's there's many more uh, kind of secular beatitudes or blessing statements we could list and and maybe not. Everybody in our world buys into each of these. But in a sense, when we see people who have these kind of uh, characteristics in their life, when we see people who maybe have gone from rags to riches or who are, you know, beautiful on TV, um, we tend to think that these are the people who are blessed, that these are the people who, who maybe even God has blessed in this world. Uh, years ago, uh, when I was first in college, 
uh, I worked at a five-star steak and seafood restaurant in Sunset Beach, California. It was on PCH, right across the street from the beach. It was uh, a beautiful restaurant. It was called Captain Jack's. And at Captain Jack's, we used to have all kinds of interesting people come in. Uh, Cameron Diaz lived two blocks away, so she would come in a lot. Uh, the Los Angeles Lakers and Phil Jackson, I would wait on them a lot. Uh, Sandra Bullock. I mean, it was, it was really it was fascinating because you'd kind of take a double look when you walked by some of these tables um, because there was just a lot of celebrities, a lot of high-profile uh, lawyers and mayors and that kind of thing. Um, but the, my, the favorite person uh, that we all loved waiting on, his name was Mr. Bilek. You guys have probably never heard of Mr. Bilek, but Mr. Bilek invented uh, a piece of crystal that went inside NASA spaceships. And when he was like 32, he retired and he was multimillionaire. I mean, the guy just, you know, has has money coming out of his ears. And every time that Mr. Bilek would walk into Captain Jack's, he would hand either a $20 bill or a $100 bill to everyone he saw. So he'd come through the door and, uh, you know, we would say, welcome to Captain Jack's, Mr. Bilek. And then, do there's a 20. I'd go fill his water glass in two minutes. Okay, here's another 20. You know, once he gave me a stack of like eight or nine $20 bills and said, go give that to everyone in the kitchen. And, uh, you know, for him, it was like pennies. It was, it was nothing. But, you know, I always thought, especially at that time, that Mr. Bilek is blessed, you know. I would love to be Mr. Bilek. I would love to be able to just throw $20 bills at everybody that walked by. And in, in their kind of Americanized pursuit of happiness, you know, when you're thinking about it through that lens, Mr. Bilek is blessed. He has achieved this kind of ideal that we as a culture strive for, that we look for. Um, and, I, and I think to some extent there's a pull um, for all of us to define blessing in those terms. We're so inundated, we're so kind of soaked and saturated with that definition of blessing that sometimes it becomes difficult for us to think about blessing in any other way. If that's not blessing, if uh, our rich uncle or Mr. Bilek or Hollywood is not the definition of blessing, then what is? I think this is a foggy concept for many Christians, and many of us aren't sure exactly how to define blessing much less achieve it. But Jesus does. And uh, in Matthew 5, he sets the record straight and he defines blessing for us. Um, but before we open to Matthew 5, I want to give everyone a little bit of context. So if you look in your Bibles at Matthew 4, uh, you get the context of Matthew 5. And in, in Matthew 4, what's going on is Jesus is starting his public ministry. He's kind of going public with this message. He's you know, around the age of 30 years old, and he's in um, northern Israel around the Sea of Galilee, and he's traveling to these little fishing villages and towns, and he's going to, to the, the synagogues, and he's preaching and he's teaching, and he's announcing a very specific message. He's announcing this message of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And his message is to repent and enter the kingdom. And he's he's summoning people. He's inviting people to enter this kingdom um, by his miracles and by his words. And so in Matthew 4:23 we read this. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among people. So as Jesus is doing this, he gets this reputation and this following. And all of a sudden, people are following him around everywhere he goes. And the group's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Until we get to chapter 5, verse 1. And Matthew writes this. When Jesus saw the crowds, this is the crowds that's following him from city to city, from town to town, he went up to a mountainside and sat down. 
Now, Jesus wasn't tired. Uh, he sat down because that's what teachers did. That's what rabbis did in this culture. When they taught, they sat. And then it says his disciples came to him and he began to teach. So the picture that Matthew is painting here is Jesus is going town to town and uh, teaching in front of big crowds. And here in Matthew 5, he delivers a sermon. And uh, what he does is he kind of goes off the beaten path. And he brings with him some of his devoted followers. Probably some of the crowd is still there too. But it's mostly his devoted followers that are with him. And they go to this place um, that's a mountainside. Now, it's really more of a large hill. They didn't have, and they still don't have, uh, mountains in Galilee. Um, and that large hill um, is probably on the northern end of the Sea of Galilee. It's kind of hard to make out in this map, but if you look at that little body of water up by the Green Arrow, uh, at the top of that is the traditional site of the Mount of Beatitudes. And uh, for nearly 1,600 years, uh, the north shore of Galilee there is where the, the Mount of Beatitudes is. This is where a lot of people think that he preached his sermon. And if you go there today, um, it's absolutely stunning. They have uh, a little Catholic chapel. There's well-maintained gardens. Um, there's a hospice that you could stay in that's ran by two Franciscan sisters. Um, and a few years ago, there's the chapel right there in the middle of the screen. A few years ago, I got a chance to stay here, and it's just absolutely gorgeous. You, you could see the Sea of Galilee, and there's these little hills um, all over there. And um, the next picture shows us kind of what it might have looked like. Um, if we go to the next picture, Rob, um, this is kind of what it would have looked like, you know, in our text. You have somebody teaching and everybody's kind of scattered on this hill. And one of the things I want you to think about is who Jesus was teaching to. So these disciples that Jesus is teaching to, um, it's not just the 12, it's a larger group of men and women who are probably tired and weary and hungry. These people left their jobs, their friends, their families. They, they, they've moved all in to follow Jesus and they're going wherever he goes and they're following the good shepherd and they're hanging on his every word. And a lot of them are simple people. They're fishermen. Maybe some of them are unemployed. They're carpenters. And it's primarily to this group of people, to these devoted followers that Jesus speaks to in our text, in Matthew 5, 3 through 12. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Matthew 5, verse 3, the first book in the New Testament. Also, the text is going to be uh, on the screen above, or you could follow along uh, in your sermon guides. Um, the text is printed there as well. So here's what Jesus says to his disciples and also to us. Verse three, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will become children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, if you're married, 
or if you had a mother like mine, you know that when somebody repeats a word over and over and over again, it means they want you to pay attention. It means they want you to tune in and listen. And in our text, Jesus repeats this word blessed uh, nine times in ten verses. And this is where we get the word beatitude. It means, uh, uh, it's butas in Latin. It just means blessed. And what Jesus is doing here is he's using a very common way of writing. You find beatitudes in the Psalms and in a lot of other places in the gospel. So he's, he's using this very conventional way of writing um, to declare who the blessed are among them. And remember, Jesus is talking to his disciples who have left everything. And in a sense, he's saying, although you guys aren't blessed in the eyes of the world, Although people don't necessarily envy, everybody doesn't envy you and and, and seek your lifestyle, in the eyes of God, you are blessed. The Greek word for blessed is uh, makaraos, and it means to be approved or congratulated by God. To be approved or congratulated by God. It's about having the smile of God and the roaring applause of heaven on your life. You see, according to Jesus, true blessing, real blessing, is not so much about material wealth. It's not about good looks. It's not about how you feel on the inside. It's not about an amazing sex life. Those things might be good to have, but according to Jesus, real blessing and true blessing is about God's approval on your life. It's about the smile of God. And throughout Scripture, the saints, the great saints of the Old Testament and the New Testament, their driving force in life was for this kind of a blessing. It was for God's blessing. When you think about the Old Testament, you look at the lives of Noah and Abraham and Moses and Deborah and all of these people. One of the things they have in common is that they're trying to please God. They're trying to satisfy God. They're trying to put a smile on God's face and not necessarily their own. You also see this with Paul and his ministry team. In First Thessalonians chapter two, Paul writes this. We speak as those approved by God. To be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. We are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy and righteous and blameless we were among you. Encouraging, comforting, urging you to live lives worthy of God who called you into his kingdom and glory. See, what Paul's saying there is he's not a people pleaser, he's a God pleaser. And his, his goal in life, his goal in his ministry is to make his churches God pleasers as well. Is to make his churches chase after God's approval and not people's approval. We also find this in Galatians 1.10 where Paul writes this, Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. If Paul was still trying to serve, to serve people, if he was still trying to win the approval of people, he wouldn't be a Christian. That's not a very uh, good way to win people's approval. In uh, a letter to a young pastor and missionary, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 2.15, he writes this. Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, as one blessed, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Paul's prayer for Timothy, for this, for this young pastor that he was mentoring, was that Timothy would be someone who was approved, would be someone who had the smile of God and the roaring applause of heaven on his life. And if this was important for Paul, if this was important for Jesus, it's important for us as well. And so we have to ask ourselves, is God's approval the driving force of our life? Or 
Is the approval of our neighbor or our co-workers or our friends or our families or our enemies? Is that really what we're chasing after? Is it to get a bigger house or a nicer car to improve to impress that person? Is it to, to buy that shirt or those pants to impress that girl or that guy? What is the driving force? Whose approval are we really after in life? And the truth is, when you think about it, when the creator of the universe, when the God who made galaxies and stars and ants looks at your life and smiles, that's where real blessing lies. That's where real blessing is. And when that happens, I truly believe, and I've experienced myself, that is, that's when you experience real joy and real happiness. The kind of happiness that um, is more substantive than the short dreams and the fleeting feelings that the world has to offer. This is the kind of blessing that we want. This is the kind of blessing, at least, that we should want, that we should desire. And it's God's uh, invitation for all of us to seek it. But if we're going to seek that blessing, if we're going to seek God's approval, I want to suggest you two things um, that we should really grab a hold of from the Beatitudes. First is this. Blessing comes through kingdom living. The first way to live a blessed life is to live a kingdom life, is to live into this kingdom that Jesus is talking about. Uh, years ago, there was a dramatic movie on TV about the first test pilots to break the sound barrier. And uh, in this movie, um, it was before no one had flown faster than the speed of sound, and a lot of people didn't even believe it was possible. Uh, and then eventually in this movie, these kind of daring pilots... Uh, said, okay, well, we're going to go over that magic number of 725 miles an hour and see what happens. And so they break the sound barrier only to have their planes disintegrate with these huge vibrations, and, and a few of them even crashed. And uh, the controls in the cockpit, it seemed, refused to work properly after the plane went over the sound barrier. And then uh, at the climax of the movie, though, there was this one test pilot who figured out what to do. He thought, or he had this hunch, that the airplane controls worked in reverse once you broke the sound barrier. So, for instance, pulling back on the stick would bring the plane into a nosedive, and pulling um, forward on the stick would bring the plane up, and, and, and that kind of thing. And so what the pilot did is he went uh, very, very fast, and eventually he broke through the sound barrier, and instead of um, pulling the uh, stick uh up, he pulled it forwards, and the plane went up and went faster than any plane had gone before, and it broke the sound barrier, and the plane was okay. And you see, that's exactly what Jesus is doing in this passage. That's exactly what Jesus is doing in the Beatitudes. He's taking us through a sound barrier where all of the controls work backwards, where everything works in reverse, where up is down and down is up. And according to the normal logic of the world, these beatitudes don't make a lot of sense. People are not thought to be blessed who are poor in spirit, mourners, meek, righteous, merciful, pure in heart, persecuted. These people are not thought to be blessed. And this is also not a way to really get ahead in the world. You know, sometimes you take shortcuts to get ahead. Living this way could cost you your job. Living according to the Beatitudes could cost you a friendship or two. And I think this is one of the reasons that Christianity is a stumbling block for many people. But the important thing to realize is that the Beatitudes are countercultural. They're radical. And Jesus is inviting you and me and these disciples to really view the world upside down, is to really view the world in a different way, 
Jesus is a different kind of a king with a different kind of kingdom. And he's offering us um, a new kind of lens or perspective to view the world, a new way of relating to, to others, a new way of living in this world and in the spheres of influence that we have. And so he summons us to do this. But I think one of the problems with embracing this challenge is we kind of have trouble understanding this concept of the kingdom. You know, what exactly is the kingdom? Um, We don't live in a country with kings and queens and princesses and warring kingdoms. We're not familiar with that. Uh, If you don't go to medieval reenactments and play Dungeons and Dragons, you probably don't think a whole lot about kingdoms. It's just probably not on your radar screen. And so I think partially because of that, we have a hard time understanding this notion of the kingdom of heaven, of the kingdom of God. But when you read the Gospels, the kingdom is huge for Jesus. It's more important than anything else. He's going around everywhere telling people to repent and enter the kingdom. He's never saying, accept me as your personal Lord and Savior or accept me in your heart. You never hear him say that. But he always says, repent and enter the kingdom. And so one helpful way of thinking about this is to consider what happens when when a new person comes into power. So when anyone comes into power, whether it's a king or a governor, a mayor, a CEO, what happens is that new person's power is expressed through uh, new priorities, new policies, new strategies, through a new administration. And if that administration is wise and smart and meets the people's needs, um, then uh, what results is an improved quality of life for a lot of people. Um, And when Jesus Christ comes into power, the supernatural king of the universe, he brings with him this new administration with a new set of priorities and strategies, with new policies. And the result is, is radical. It's transformational. It's more than an improved quality of life. When Jesus comes into power over our hearts, our lives and our families and our communities and our world is radically changed. And this is why a lot of your lives look very different than the lives of those in the world. That's why a lot of you are involved in uh, adopting or taking care of foster kids and helping with uh, the homeless in helping um, pay to send a team to Colombia to do mission work. It's because you are viewing the world upside down. You are living in a kingdom where the controls work in reverse and where blessing is defined by Jesus and not Hollywood. The other interesting thing about this passage is uh, the way you read it. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I used to think that the Beatitudes were talking about different kinds of people. So, for instance, you had the mourners, you know, the people who cry a lot. You had the peacemakers who didn't like war and the persecuted. You know, there's kind of different types of people in the church, and it's kind of like spiritual gifts. Everyone has one. Um, That's what I used to think about the Beatitudes. But when you look at the Beatitudes, that's frankly not what they're doing at all. What they're doing is they're describing qualities and characteristics of one group of people. They're describing um, what a, a redeemed life looks like. They're describing what a disciple looks like. Disciples mourn. Disciples are spiritually bankrupt and depend on God. Disciples are peacemakers in their relationships. And if you read the text that way, some of you might be a little bit discouraged. Because you don't feel like you measure up. You don't feel like you're always meek. You're certainly not always merciful. Sometimes you cause war instead of peace. And, and it's, it's easy to kind of get down on yourself because of this. I, I know this has been the case for me over the past few weeks. The Beatitudes have really um, been both uh, exciting and attractive and also a little bit embarrassing. 
Because if I'm honest with myself, I'm not always meek. I'm not always merciful. I'm not always a peacemaker. And so I think one of the very important things to realize about the Beatitudes is that they're not just describing the life of a Christian, but they also provide us with the pathway to blessing. They also give us a roadmap to spiritual growth. If you look at the Beatitudes, you could kind of split them up into two parts. And the first four really hang together and they talk about our need before God. Our need before God. Being poor in spirit, mourning, meek, and hungry and thirsting for righteousness are really about this declaration of not independence, but dependence. It's about a life that is leaning into God, that is depending on him uh, for, for spiritual nourishment and spiritual growth. And this is the first step towards growing with God. If you could think about the Christian life as a plant, I like plants a lot. Uh, the roots of the kingdom life uh, are these first four Beatitudes, the roots of the Christian life. Being poor in spirit is to realize you don't have it all together. Mourning is mourning your sin and the pain in the world. And being meek is a confession that you don't have the resources you need. Finally, hungering and thirsting for righteousness is wanting a God-centered life. You see, in the Christian life, unlike many self-help books, motivational speakers, and New Age religions, the roots of the kingdom do not look inside for answers, but they look outside. They look to God. New Testament scholar Dale Bruner puts it this way, God helps those who cannot help themselves. The first four Beatitudes. He also helps those who try to help themselves. The last four Beatitudes. But listen to this. Really important. But he does not in any Beatitude help those who think they can help themselves. God doesn't help those who think they can help themselves. God doesn't help those who are independent and autonomous and want to do life their own way. God helps those who lean on and depend on him. And wherever you are in your spiritual journey today, if you're just checking things out, if you are off the reservation, you are doing your own thing, and you know you are far from Christ, or if you are close to Christ, the answer for all of you is the same thing. Begin with God. In the morning, begin with God with prayer. In the car, begin with God. In the face of temptation, begin with God. The, the, the first step in your spiritual growth is going to be a radical dependency on God. But from there, we must move to an outward dimension of our faith. We have to move from what I call roots to fruits. We have to move from the roots of the kingdom to the spiritual fruits of the kingdom. And so the last four Beatitudes really focus on this outward dimension of our faith. Uh, uh, they give us four spiritual fruits that result from a life that is dependent on God. They're kind of like runway lights uh, for the airplanes. You know, you have the runway lights on, on the um, runway and um, what they're doing is they're just trying to make sure that the plane kind of knows where it's going so it doesn't crash into the ocean and and that's kind of what the beatitudes are they're not an exhaustive list of what a christian looks like uh, but they kind of give us a, a, a sense of direction and so that's what jesus is doing in these last four things and together this is really how spiritual growth happens we um, depend on god first and then, out of that desire, out of that heart that wants to please God, we uh, are peacemakers, and we are merciful, and we are loving. And so, if you're stagnant, or if you're stuck in your spiritual life, don't just try to be a peacemaker. Don't just try to produce fruits or manufacture it on yourself. 
the first thing you have to do is to go to God and admit your spiritual bankruptcy and then move on from there. But it's not just what Jesus says here that matters. It also matters who said it. So my second point, the second thing we need to understand to live a blessed life, to live a life that is marked with God's smile and approval, is that blessing comes through following Jesus. Blessing comes through following Jesus. You see, Jesus didn't just talk about poverty of spirit, meekness, and mercy. He was poor, meek, and merciful. Jesus was all of these things. He embodies them. He's the explanation. He's the picture of what the eight Beatitudes look like. And in one sense, what Jesus is saying to us in this passage is this is who I am and this is what friendship with me looks like. This is what oneness with God looks like. And if you think about it, this is exactly true. Uh, Jesus was poor in spirit. He had a radical dependency on God. When the devil offered him all the kings in the world, he refused it because his life was so God-centered, because he was so focused on God's approval that he gave up whatever offer Satan could have. Jesus was mourning. The gospel writers tell us again and again that he is, he is mourning over Lazarus's death. He is mourning as he looks at the city of Jerusalem and is broken by their unbelief that they have denied God, that they have resisted God's love for them. Jesus was meek. He was gentle and lowly in heart. In the Garden of Gethsemane, before his execution, he was in deep agony. And his prayer was not my will, but thy will be done. That's what meekness looks like. Meekness is not so much a timidity or shyness. Meekness is washing other people's feet. Meekness is hanging on a cross for other people. And that takes a spine of steel. That takes boldness and courage. Jesus was the one who hungered and thirsted for righteousness. At the beginning of the ministry, of his ministry, we learn that Jesus fasted. And at the end of his ministry, we learn that he thirsted. And during Jesus' ministry, when the disciples were concerned that Jesus wasn't eating enough food, Jesus responded to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. He hungered and thirsted for righteousness. He hungered and thirsted for God's approval, for kingdom living. Jesus was merciful. He extended love and mercy to people the world hated, to the discards, to the demonics and the lepers and the tax collectors. Jesus was pure in heart. He had an undivided heart. He served God alone and resisted the schemes of Satan and the temptations that are normal for any human being. Jesus was pure in heart. He was also a peacemaker. Amazingly, Jesus loved his enemies. He prayed for his executioners. He forgave the thieves on the cross. On the night before Jesus died, he told his disciples, Peace I leave you. May peace I give you. Not as the world gives, do I give you peace. The peace that Jesus gives occurred through his sacrificial death and victorious resurrection. And it's the peace that's extended to each one of us. Peace in our relationship with God. Peace in our relationship with others, with ourselves, with creation itself. And finally, Jesus was persecuted for his righteousness. Because of his radically countercultural style, he was tortured and murdered. You see, blessing, God's approval, comes from following Jesus' example. He's our model. He's our pattern to follow after. And friends, if you want to see what the Beatitudes look like, if you want to see what the smile of God and the roaring applause of heaven look like, be still and take your time to watch Jesus. Read the Gospels. Uh, There's an 
ancient uh, Greek mythology story. It's from uh, Homer's Odyssey. And in this story, um, it tells about the dangerous passageway, uh, sea passageway between uh, Sheila and uh, Charybdi. And, uh, and what the boats would do in the story is they would go through this passageway with uh, Sicily on one side and Italy on the other. And it was this very dangerous journey because you had sea monsters who were trying to get the ship. And you had this, this big kind of uh, whirlwind um, in the sea that would suck up ships. And then, of course, you had um, the infamous and beautiful sirens, uh, these women who would sing these seductive, uh, beautiful songs um, on the rocks, and they would lure ships towards them until they shipwrecked uh, on the rocks. And um, in the Odyssey, we're told of different approaches to get by the sirens. And the first one is this. Ulysses coped with this by stopping up the ears of his rowers with wax. And then he strapped himself on the mass of the ship. And this, I think, is how many Christians live. They try to escape the world around them. And they try to shut out all competing voices. They, they, they build this kind of Christian ghetto, this Christian subculture, where they don't have to hear the world. But I don't think that's the way, best way to follow Jesus. A better approach to countering evil and following Jesus would be to recall Orpheus. You see, when Orpheus approached the rocks of disaster, what he did was different. He pulled out his lyre and he played a louder and more beautiful song than the seductive sirens. And his rowers were so entranced, they were so sucked in with the beauty of his song that they didn't even hear the sirens. And if we want to follow Jesus, if we want to live into the kingdom life, this is how we have to do it. We have to hear the song of Jesus. We have to be so satisfied with the life of Jesus and this personal, intimate relationship we have with him that we don't even notice the seductive voices of the world around us. This is how we avoid the secular beatitudes and the, the cheap thrills and short-lived dreams of the world. We replace them with the real thing. And one of the ways that we hear the beautiful Jesus song is through the spiritual disciplines. It's through listening to God. It's through listening to his spirit and creating rhythms in our life that expose us to Jesus. Things like prayer, scripture meditation, weekly rest, personal retreats, fasting and life-giving hobbies. These are the, the kind of rhythms we need to create a lifestyle that listens to Jesus. And studies have repeatedly shown that when the spiritual disciplines are a vital part of your life. It's one of the main catalysts for spiritual growth. And so I think the question all of us have to ask ourselves are what are um, the disciplines or how are we being spiritually formed this summer? What is it that enables us to hear the Jesus song? What is it that enables us to see the way Jesus lived and follow it? And if those things aren't in your life, then I encourage you to think about this week how you can add in things like conversational prayer, fun hobbies, Sabbath rest. Not just quiet times, but a whole life that is paying attention to the life of Jesus. Real blessing comes through kingdom living and following Jesus. And this is where we're going this summer, and I invite you to join us. And if you're not there yet, I want to say um, that that's okay. Uh, when I was growing up, my family loved two things in life. They loved God and USC football, uh, the University of Southern California. 
And uh, my aunts, my uncles, my grandparents, all of them were fanatics. And every Saturday uh, that USC played, we would always watch their games. And I remember when I was a kid hearing this infamous story um, about this guy named Roy Regals. And uh, Roy Regals was an interesting guy. In 1929, uh, on New Year's Day, it was the Rose Bowl. And uh, during the Rose Bowl, uh, Georgia Tech was playing the University of Southern California. And it was uh, late in the first uh, half, uh, the end of the second quarter, and the game was tied. And there was a fumble on the play. And Roy Regals, who was the center for USC, scooped up the ball. He cut through several different tacklers and ran 60 yards to the end zone. And all of a sudden, when he got inside the five, he was tackled by one of his own players. And the reason for that is because Roy was sprinting as fast as he could the wrong direction. He was, he was going towards his own end zone. And I think if there's some of you today that are going the wrong direction, if you're going the wrong way, if you're seeking blessing in the wrong places, the answer is to repent. And all repent means is you change directions, is that you go another way, is that you seek blessing in another place. And according to the Beatitudes, that place that God wants us, that God desires us to seek blessing is, is in following Jesus and in living into this kingdom life. And as we do that, we will experience the smile of God. As we do that, we will experience the approval of God. So to help you do that, we've also included a resource for you. Uh, if you look inside of your sermon guides, you'll find a little card that looks like this. And um, in the Old Testament, what the Jews used to do in the book of Deuteronomy is they would take the law and they would make little cards like this, and then they would string it on their foreheads and put it on all their doorposts. Um, but you don't have to do that if you don't want to. Uh, but you're welcome to do that. Um, but, but what I really want is for all of us just to put these uh, in our Bibles, uh, maybe on our vanity mirrors, uh, in your underwear drawer, if you open that very much. Uh, basically, somewhere where you're going to see this card uh, every single day um, so that you can really live with and soak in and memorize the Beatitudes. When we do that, when we uh, are exposed to God's word, it gives the Holy Spirit a chance to transform us and change us uh, more into the image of Christ and more into the blessed life. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you want to bless us, that you want to approve us and congratulate us. And you have given us the resources we need to do that. You have given us your spirit. You have given us your scripture and this wonderful church body. And I pray that this summer, each of us would take one step closer to Christ. I pray that this summer, that Hope Covenant Church would live into the upside down kingdom that we would be different from the world around us and that the strategies and priorities of our life would be your strategies and your priorities, Father. Help us to live out the Beatitudes over these next eight weeks. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.